everybody. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin. Joining me today on the Skype my phone is Jillian Venters, author of Gothic Charm School, an essential guide for goths and those who love them. Jillian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Jillian, I don't know a ton about goth culture. I think if someone asked me to describe goths, I'd probably start with um, what I perceive to be the music they like and the clothes they wear. I think I only have this kind of superficial understanding. So maybe a good place to start is, uh, like, how do you define goth culture? What, what's a goth to you? Uh, to me, and my definition is a little broader, actually, is someone someone with goth tendencies or someone who's interested in goth, the goth subculture, is someone who is able to find beauty in possibly dark or unsettling places. Uh, and then it is tied in with the music. It is tied in with the aesthetic and the fashion. But most people I know who came to the subculture you know, didn't immediately know that they were goth or that they were interested in goth. They maybe heard a piece of music or they saw a movie with a darker, weirder aesthetic and went, I need to learn more about that. So that, I think, is where really the definition comes from. Is that what happened to you? It is. What, what, what was the thing for you? What was like that lightning moment? For me, it was, okay, because I, I grew up a weird kid. I wanted to be the Wicked Witch of the West when I grew up, all of that. Everyone that listened to this show grew up a weird kid. So you're, you're, Excellent. you're amongst friends here. Excellent. And when I went to high school, it was in a you know suburb of Seattle, and there weren't really separate subcultures. All of us weird kids just hung out together. So I didn't really know that there were larger subdivisions. It was just all of us weirdos wearing black, wearing weird clothes, listening to weird music. And can I and ask so what, when when was this? I don't want to just just because <laughs> no, I don't want to ask your age, but I think that's important because like weirdos in high school that's like changed over the years. So I think it's important to think about like when this was, what era this was, roughly. You know, it it is it is totally changed over the years. I am completely open with my age. I am 50 years old. I graduated in 1987. Okay, so this was a time when like, yeah, I think weird kids are I I don't know, but I think I perceive them to be more accepted now. This was a time when like weird kids were kind of outcasts, right? We we kind of were. I was very lucky in that. For whatever reason, I'm outgoing, I'm gregarious, and I didn't get the sort of bullying or weirdness that a lot of my compatriots did, especially in my generation. But there was definitely an element of it was hard to be kind of strange or, you know, to quote Lydia Dietz from Beetlejuice, to be strange and unusual. But when I got to college, I started meeting people from larger areas who told me about, no, there are more subdivisions. And introduced me to more of the music, introduced me to a lot of the little independent zines and magazines that you had to go to like really weird music stores and tiny comic shops to find copies of. And then I I learned, oh, and so there are clubs and there are concerts I can go to. This is my tribe. These are my people. And I just, I didn't look back. And then like in a goth club, what, what would you discuss in a goth club? What would be like what would be the business in a weekly goth club meeting? Well, it's not okay. It's not that sort of club. It's like nightclubs. So people, people go to dance. People go to socialize. I'm so lame. I'm so lame. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. We joke that there is no elder goth cabal and that we do not have monthly meetings where we send information to each other by bats. There, there is no cabal. I swear. And the thing that unites you guys is one, you have this shared aesthetic, both like for yourself and pop culture, but then also this point of view about finding beauty in things that are maybe ugly or sick or something like dark in some way. Is that right? Dark. Yes. Yeah. So like, what's an example of that? Like where might a goth find beauty and you know, just that sort of thing? Like wh- wh- how does that manifest? Um, one of the big cliches is that goths love to hang out in cemeteries and Part of that is because we're aware of a lot of us are aware of the historic tradition of that public cemeteries got started as public parks. People would go to cemeteries to visit their loved ones, but also to socialize, to have picnics on the at the grave sites and things like that. So it is not inherently disrespectful. And goths tend to love to go to graveyards to look at the tombstones and see Who's there to look at their memories? Um, a lot of us do gravestone rubbings and that sort of thing. Other uh, slightly morbid things, though it has become 
much more acceptable and accessible in modern day culture are memento mori, finding beauty in skulls, finding beauty in skeletons and mourning ephemera and things like that. And when, do you have a sense, not that you're the official historian for goth subculture, but do you have a sense when did when did this start? Like I perceive it to have kind of emerged in the 80s, is that right? Yes, the the kind of flashpoint that the sub the modern version of the subculture grew up around was a music genre that came out of punk that came out of new romantic and the the some of the seminal bands are like Joy Division and Bauhaus and Susie and the Banshees and really the kind of point where a lot of goth historians say, okay, this is it, this is where everything started to coalesce, is when Bauhaus released the song Bella Lugosi's Dead, because there you're referencing classic black and white vampire movies, and they were very theatrical, they were very exaggerated with their makeup and their dress, and their the people at their concerts, again, very exaggerated in how they looked, with you know dark eyeliner and stuff like that. And at the same time, the nightclub in London, the Bat cave was really picking up steam and they were a club that again focused on alternative subcultures focused on the burgeoning weird post-punk sort of musical movement and again all the new romantics started kind of slowly moving to these weird black kind of fetish and victorian blended fashions there was a lot of vintage you know let me go find a black morning dress or a black frock coat and this is all happening kind of like while you're a teenager, like you got to kind of experience this, uh, you kind of got to watch this at, at, in your youth. Is that right? Um, kind of, but because this was this was in the mid 80s, it was harder to find this stuff unless you were someone who was really lucky. And I had hit or miss luck with this to find an alt- a radio station that had like an alternative music show. You didn't necessarily know about this music. You would, you know, there would occasionally be images in whatever pop magazine that a friend had gotten imported from England, but it was a little harder to find this stuff. MTV didn't necessarily show these videos or show them regularly. So again, it was a, did I find this video? Okay, yes. How do I find out more about this band? That was incredibly hard because again, no internet. So you had to hope you remembered the name of the band and the name of the song and then go to record stores and try and find one that carried imported music or that had a clerk that knew what the hell you were talking about. Right. It's so interesting how these like subcultures spread in a pre-internet world, how like this culture spread from this one specific club in London. And now we can see that it's like this um, it became this culture that like people still participate in 20, 30 years later, you know? Yeah. And one of there was also kind of a simultaneous movement in like Los Angeles there was a big west coast kind of they called it death rock it was really kind of this darker punk rock and again very involved with dark imagery funerals b b horror movies things like that and as people started being able to reference things in zines and tiny magazines and become pen pals you got more crossover to this stuff but it really there were pockets across the globe, but it really became like a unified people could find each other subculture with the advent of the internet, I feel. Now this book, you wrote this book. The book is 10 years old. It's been in publication for 10 years, right? 10 years, yes. I celebrated the anniversary of the book uh, this past weekend. So It's still out there. It's like still being published. The book is yes. Gothic Charm School, An Essential Guide for Goths and Those Who Love Them. I'm a little late here. I know this is 10 years later, but <laughs> what made you, like, where did this book come from? How did this come to be? Uh, this came to be because it is based off of, it's a companion piece to my website, Gothic Charm School, which in November of this year, I will have been writing content along these lines online for 21 years. So my my writing for this subculture is we'll be old enough to drink, which is that's funny, but a when, little weird. <laughs> so when we talk about like that goth culture was sort of spread out and disparate until the internet um, helped unify it a little bit. You were you've been doing this for a while. You must have been there for that 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 moment when the internet kind of brought a lot of it together. It sounds like your website probably was not long after that moment, right? Yeah, it kind of was there at that beginning part of about you know ninety four ninety five. 
I met people I found online. I found the the good old Usenet back in the day. Sure. And there were two new Usenet groups, which was alt.gothic and alt.gothic fashion. And that's how I met a lot of people. I also met a lot of people because I was working in the game industry at the time. I worked for Wizards of the Coast Games. Whoa, they whoa, sent- whoa, 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 whoa. Ex- hold on. You were working for Wizards of the Coast Games in the 80s? Or no, in the, in 90s. the 90s. This is the 90s. The 90s. So this is like Magic this the Gathering. Yes, it is Magic the Gathering. Oh um, if you look at the book and it says illustrations by Pete Venters, that is my husband, Pete Venters, who is, yes, the Pete Venters, who has done a bunch of art for Magic the Gathering. Oh, my God. I've actually been looking for a Magic the Gathering artist for this podcast. I should. I, I, I'll, I'll, we'll talk, we can talk about that later. But you were yes. working at Wizards of the Coast. That's very exciting. And so, yeah, so you're on the cutting edge of nerddom. I, I weirdly am. I was also one of those people in the, the early days of the Camarilla of the Vampire Live Action Role Playing Group based off of Vampire the Masquerade. That's where I met a whole bunch of my very dear friends. So because of those weird interconnections, I ended up uh, having a friend named Darren McKeeman who decided early on he was going to launch a website and it was going to be kind of a locus point for goth content, for interviews, for short fiction from authors like Clive Barker and Poppy Z. Bright and Caitlin Kiernan and people like that. So because I knew Darren, we hung out at a convention one summer and he said, yeah, this site's going to launch in October. Um, I need more content. So what the hell are you writing for me? You're going to write something nonfiction. And I went, oh, um, yeah, okay, I can do that. And I was, I'm a huge fan of Miss Manor. So I was like, you know, we need a subculture specific version of that because we run into issues that should kind of be common sense but maybe aren't necessarily covered and it took off from there okay so this is what i really want to talk about what are the sort of unique etiquette issues that goths run into uh the big one is because we are a very visually oriented subculture mm-hmm. people who are not of our subculture don't necessarily know how to interact with us and we people will get a lot of comments thrown at them unkind comments and things like that where you know oh it's not halloween yet hey morticia what are you doing and how do you react to that there is there is of course the stereotype that goths are very icy and mean and to a degree that's a defense mechanism you know, when you, especially when you're a weird kid in high school and you get a lot of this sort of abuse and things, your instinct is to return in kind, to lash back out. And I started really thinking about that. And I never had success with that tact. None of my friends did. So I started looking at it as a way of what can we do to get across that we do not approve of this sort of behavior directed at us, but not stoop to their level. And so a lot of times my, my advice has been, well, smile icily at them and don't engage if you don't have to. But also to keep in mind, because we are such a visually separate subculture, people are going to look weird at you. You know, if you are out there dressed like a Victorian vampire, you are outside of the norm. People are going to look at you. People are going to ask questions. And you don't have to be their one-stop shop to explain the goth subculture, but giving just a short, polite answer of, no, this is how I always look, or this is what I like to do, there's nothing wrong with that. So I want to ask this question, and I want to like not sound like my mother when I ask, <laughs> but like, um, and I, this is coming from someone who is very uncreative in his fashion. Like, I don't think a lot about the clothes I wear. It's like not something that's very important to me. Why would someone dress as like a vampire? Like, what is sort of what are they like? What is I don't know. Why just why would someone do that? And I ask that very respectfully. Why? What is what are they going for with that? Um, part of it is it's an aesthetic they're attracted to. I have my, my mother used to describe me in my, my twenties and going forward until she passed away as the Mary Poppins as envisioned by Tim Burton. And it's just, it's an aesthetic thing. People like the all black clothing. They like the flowing dramaticness of it. And for a lot of people, it is a way, it is a subcultural signifier. It is a badge to say, hey, I am part of this community. I am part of this tribe. Not unlike wearing like a Knicks jersey or whatever. It's the same sort of thing. It is how you show your your alignment and your support. In many ways, being a goth is 
just a different branch of someone, you know, being a D&D geek and wearing D&D shirts all the time or being a fan of a specific band and wearing those band t-shirts or a sports jersey or things like that. It's just in many, for a lot of us, the gothic aesthetic is more all-enveloping. Well, just to go back for a sec, like, what was it about Miss Manners? Like, why is etiquette important to you? Like, why do we need these rules to guide us? Because they help ease social interaction. I mean, it has come a long way from, like, the height of, you know, Victorian Edwardian etiquette where everything was very rigidly structured and you had specific ways of interacting with people of different socioeconomic classes. But etiquette smooths the social waters. If you don't necessarily know how to interact with someone, default to being polite, default to being as kind of as possible, but not being a doormat. And especially in a lot of modern society, there are times where you're going to have to interact with people that you don't share the same views of, and you don't necessarily get along with, but you have to interact with them. So etiquette is a way of giving you a structure of how do I interact with this person without coming across as being a complete jerk. But if they start being a complete jerk, etiquette is also a way to fall back and let them know that their behavior is unacceptable. So, like, you guys must appreciate that not everyone thinks skulls are beautiful and not everyone likes cemeteries or whatever. So that, like, people might be upset by the thing you guys like. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't like it or anything. But I guess I'm wondering, like, how you balance that and, you know, showing your love of it and showing your participation in this culture with, you know, not upsetting people. Because, like, people don't – I mean, people might get upset about the Knicks, but not, like, the way they'll get upset about the skull or whatever. So how how do you just – how do you deal with balancing that? Um – it, it depends on situations. I I am one of the lucky few in that in my day jobs, because I, I'm on the West Coast, because I work in the tech industry, no one bat, batted an eye at the fact that, you know, I came to work full top hat, full skirts, and, you know, decorated my desk with little monsters and pictures from, va- from vampire movies. But a lot of other people have to be stealthy about how they may signify their subcultural affiliation because people will get upset by it or because people may not understand it. And so it's a, it's a situational thing. If you are going to be in a situation where you are going to be interacting with a lot of people who are not of, the, of your subculture, tone it down a bit or, you know, don't walk around saying things like, oh, I love the dead, stuff like that. That will not, (laughs) that will not fly. And if people do question you about it, try and describe your interests in family friendly, quote unquote, terms where it's like, okay, reference the movies of Tim Burton, reference the Adams family, reference the monsters. And what, what about like in a job interview setting? I, I, I've, I realize my mom is co-hosting this podcast now, but <laughs> but like, yeah, in a job interview setting, like what response, I mean, when do you bring up that, do you show up in the job interview and, you know, full goth regalia or do you show up um, in more traditional clothes? And if so, like, then when do you reveal that, like, actually what I want to do is show up every day in this other outfit, you know? So most people in the subculture, and this is something I've talked about on the site and I have in the book. Uh, when they go for job interviews and things like that, it is, I advise, you know, go subtle as you can. Yes, you can wear all black. Yes, you can maybe wear some sort of like subtle, you know, skull cufflinks or something like that. But you don't need to necessarily be completely, you know, here I am. I want to live in a Tim Burton movie sort of presentation. And then if you get the job, slowly work your way into it. Um, And as always, make sure you are top-notch at your job, that you're a good communicator, that you are friendly with your coworkers and answering questions and things like that. Because it has been my experience that the better you are at a job, the more leeway you get in personal expression, personal sort of appearance and things like that. Now, this flies completely out the window for me because I have always shown up at interviews, you know, looking looking fairly severe Victorian, but it is very apparent that I am outside the norm. However, I also have been doing a lot of this stuff for, you know, 20 years. 
and age of the internet, people can Google, people can find out who you are, what you look like. Also, to be completely honest, at the very end of my freelance experience on my resume, it does say freelance bioexorcist from 1987. So, sorry, say that freelance bioexorcist. Yes, it's a reference from Beetlejuice. So you mentioned Beetlejuice. You just mentioned Tim Burton. Tim Burton is goth. It seems to me. I, I don't mean to. I'm asking. I guess this is a question, but it <laughs> seems like Tim Burton. Um, you know, he's a very popular. He's made some very popular movies. Um, he just made Dumbo for Disney, but he. Um, Seems to me like if if the it, he finds he often finds beauty in things that other people find ugly. It seems like kind of the main engine that makes Tim Burton movies work. So t- is Tim Burton goth? Absolutely. Though he is that that traditional classification of artist, and usually you know artists who are famous who have made it big in popular culture, where if you ask him, he will say he's not a goth. And this is a thing. I mean, Robert Smith has said this. Uh, Susie Sue has said this. A whole bunch of different artists are like, no, I'm not a goth. I just like these dark and quirky themes. So it's like, okay, we, we realize you're not willing to straight up come and say, yes, here I am. I am a part of this spooky subculture. But Tim Burton has really influenced a lot of the modern aesthetic of the goth subculture. And, you know, you have movies like Beetlejuice, you have Edward Scissorhands, who gave us such an iconic kind of romantic outsider figure in popular movies. He's completely a goth. I was lucky enough to go see the big World of Tim Burton art exhibition uh, like a decade ago. And spent the entire time just kind of swooning at everything. Nightmare Before Christmas is how so many kids get introduced to the idea of things can be unnerving or scary and yet enticing and possibly friendly. Yeah, I would... uh, I should phrase this as a question. Is Tim Burton, you were saying that like for a lot of people they see some pop culture thing and that's what brings them into the culture. Is Tim Burton like the number one artist bringing people into the culture? He is. He probably is because you know his stuff is just because it's really popular the, movies. Yeah, and because of the Disney connection, it's everywhere. And when Hot Topic first started selling Nightmare Before Christmas merchandise, I was like, "What the hell?" Well, okay, oh. I don't have to try and import stuff from Japan. There That's we go. That's a good question. Is Hot Topic goth? Hot Topic is not goth. Um, from what I understand, and I haven't set foot in there in a couple of years, they are much more kind of a Spencer's gift aimed at more pop culture and fandom, but they do have things that are that goths will like. They do still sell, you know, occasionally they'll have lines of black weird clothes. They sell hair dye. They sell eyeliner. From what I understand, some of them now have like a retro vinyl records section where you can buy vinyl re-releases of like Joy Division and Bauhaus and things like that. I bet they but have that hot topic. That sounds like exactly something they have at hot topic right now. Uh, yeah. yeah. But when they originally started out, they were much more a weird artisan store. Back in like 1996, I remember going to Hot Topic at one of our local malls because all of us at Wizards of the Coast Games would go on our lunch break, go to the mall, get get food, and then go to Hot Topic and blow our paychecks because they carried things like full-length velvet cloaks and clothing from independent goth designers and gothy magazines, gothy comic books like Johnny the Homicidal Maniac and stuff like that. So it was only over like time that they kind of metamorphosed into this we are all things to all we slightly outside the norm subcultures to the point of now, you know, the last time I went in there, they had like a whole wall of uh, merchandise for the Supernatural TV show. But part of what Hot Topic did, and this is still a point of contention with older, some older goths, is that they helped make it more acceptable to pop culture. If there's a mall store that's selling this sort of stuff, then mom and dad might be a little less freaked out by it. They may not necessarily understand why their kid wants to go into Hot Topic and buy these, you know, black clothes and stripy tights and arm warmers. But it's at the mall. How distressing can it be? Where do goth shop for clothes? Besides Hot Topic, where might I get a velvet cloak or a vampire outfit or whatever it is? At this point, you know, the Internet everywhere. Sure. You can. There are all sorts. But of how did you do it in the 80s and 90s? Thrift stores, ah. thrift stores, and this is something I constantly 
harp on at Gothic Charm School is, yes, if you do not have the time, the resources, or the skill to hit thrift stores, pick up various black items of clothing, and DIY them into like a cohesive look that you want, buying off the rack is totally fine. Go forth to Hot Topic. Go forth to the various gothy themed clothing websites that are mass mass manufactured buy the stuff but if you want an original look or if you want stuff that's that you're not seeing all over instagram then learn how to do some rudimentary sewing be willing to cut up things safety pin them together write song lyrics on them stuff like that and the other thing is you know every every couple of years the fashion industry decides that there's something about goth and punk fashion that they right, want to borrow right and it, they may not label it goth. They probably don't. They probably call it like, you know, dark romantic or something like that. But this means you can go to Target, to Macy's, and find long blaze, black lace skirts or velvet trousers or a velvet blazer. And every drugstore is going to have like dark burgundy lipstick. Is it possible if I to have a goth mindset, but to not, you know, dress uh, in, in a goth way, can I still be goth and do that? Absolutely. You don't seem like you don't strike me as a gatekeeper here who's like wants I, oh, to say God. people are are or not goth based on exactly what their interests are. Gatekeepers drive me insane. I mean to the point of where I will be doing stuff online, I'll be writing and I will see some sort of gatekeepery post and at this point I have like a couple friends or my husband that I will immediately text and say come downstairs, read this and then tell me to walk the hell away from the computer. You do write you do write a manners column. That's very good advice. Uh, I try not to get in fights online about this sort of stuff, but gatekeepers drive me insane and this is one of the big Topics I get questions on constantly at the website or that I get asked if I'm at a convention and doing a talk where people are like, well, you know, I don't like these specific bands in the genre or I don't like horror movies or I I don't want to or I can't dress that way. Am I still a goth? And it's like, good God. Yes, you are. You know, there are classic goth bands who are huge in the pantheon of gothic music that I don't like. I know who they are. I don't like them, and given a choice, I will never listen to them. But that doesn't make me less of a goth. Can I ask you a question about the Cure? I've never something I've never yes. understood about the Cure is if you look, I if I see them, I I see the goth aesthetic in Robert Smith, but the music, and I know like the greatest hits like Friday, I'm in love, and that sort of thing. Don't like nothing about them ever felt very like they they feel like normal pop regular pop songs to me is there something about the music that is that fits this idea of like celebrate finding the beauty in darkness is that in the music i'm just not listening to the lyrics closely or i'm just listening to the singles or something like that um there is an undercurrent of dark romanticism and kind of longing for love lost or strong emotions in a lot of their music especially in i want to say from like their album uh, wish on back and so wish did have the single of friday i'm in love but there's a lot of other music in there that isn't quite as poppy boys don't cry is another cure song people might know just like heaven yes just like heaven a lot of this sort of stuff either referenced gothic literature tropes or you know it was a lot of robert smith's longing and heartache about various things and so there's a joke that uh, their big single of Pictures of You is one of the top, you know, like three goth breakup songs. You go through a terrible, terrible breakup. You sit in your room. You cry. You listen to Pictures of You on repeat until you're finally like, okay, I need to get over this now. So there's a lot of people who are not in the subculture know them for their poppier music. But right. they have a, a whole history stretching back. Of, okay, so I just need to do a deeper dive there. Yes. Dis- disintegration listen to all of disintegration over and over and over it's my favorite album by them but and it came out in like 1989 yeah it is 1989 it was it's the 40 year anniversary this year which is they did a big concert at Hyde Park and I apologize because you hadn't even mentioned the cure but because you're like representing goth culture to me right now I, I, I like assigned you as the person who could explain the cure to me you know I you know this is not an unusual question for me I get all sorts of you know can you explain this aspect of the goth culture can you give me a rundown on this part of goth history and that's fine because I have done enough reading and research in all of this that you know yes I can rattle off a high level view of here are the basics 
And this is what I tell a lot of the kids. You don't have to know everything about the subculture. Know something about a band or something and know that you can go research this. You don't have to be fans of like particular bands or particular literature, but if you can either recognize the reference or ask a question to get the reference, then you're great. And this is something, again, that gatekeepers and others of us go back and forth on. Is there an age, it's funny you say the kids, is there like an age that it is is too young to be goth? Is it okay if an eighth-year-old starts identifying with goth themes and getting into that? Is, do you see a problem with that? I do not see a problem with it. Um, I would hope that their parents, one, support them and don't you know mock their interests, and two, are there to guide them at least you know say okay let's review the stuff you like sure let's watch nightmare before christmas let's wa- let's watch the adams family let's go on the haunted mansion at disneyland you know because it's all a lot of goth underpinnings are kind of looking at ideas of ghost stories and horror movies through slightly different lenses so i have gotten email to the website from kids as young as 9 at conventions i have met like multi-generational goth families at this point people who were in the original part of the scene or people who are kind of second wave like like i consider my generation we are you know we are of the age to be grandparents we are of the age to have kids who are now adults and having their own children so at various goth festivals you will see photos of first second and third generation people all of them goth you know, little toddlers in strollers wearing little spooky onesies because their parents want them to to be part of their world. And then the kids will either grow up and be part of it or the kids will be like, eh, it's not my thing. And they'll move away from it. And then for people, for kids who are getting into this, who come from, again, more traditional families, um, and I guess it, I imagine this is a thing that certain parents um, will resist a lot. Yes. And I guess like, what, what advice do you give in terms of navigating that? There's two branches of advice I give to it. One is the, okay, introduce your parents to some of the more family-friendly stuff. Explain to them what attracts you to the subculture. Is it the music? Is, the, is it the aesthetic? Is it that you like horror movies? Try and explain to them and then say, you know, reference really family-friendly stuff. The Munsters, the Adams Family. That Munsters, sort of thing. The, the Adams family, I figured, were goth, but the Munsters are goth? We're going to say the Herman Munster is goth? Um, they embody gothic archetypes. They're certainly borrowing from classic horror monsters, sure. which are class, you know, borrowing again from classic gothic horror literature. You've got Frankenstein, you've got Dracula, you've got ghost stories. In and they're in, they're, they're in love, and we're looking at them through this new angle. Yes. And also, you know, talking, asking their, asking their parents what their objections are. And for a lot of parents, especially for, again, the kids, for tweens and teenagers, parents tend to view the goth subculture as a late teens, 20s thing where people are going out to nightclubs and getting drunk and stuff like that, and they don't necessarily know of the larger roots. And one of the other things I get that I've been able to talk about is goth is not a religion. There are people of all religious walks of life who are part of the gothic subculture. There's a website out there for Christian goths. Uh, One of my best friends when I was in my 20s was a devout Mormon and a super elaborate goth girl. So, you know, asking the parents what their objections are and trying to address them, trying to talk to them about it. And then the other branch of advice and it's the the one that i i hate giving but it is something i have seen happen which is you go stealth you you do what you can to like listen to music but don't outwardly necessarily have a gothy appearance don't really talk to your parents or anything about you know here are these horror novels i'm reading or here are these people i've met online and then you know just hold out until you move away from home go go to college meet other people of your subculture. And this is especially a thing for people who are in small towns. They possibly would be the only goth in their their town. People will be really judgmental. And sometimes you've just got to grit your teeth and wait it out. Uh, all right. I want to get back to the etiquette thing, but let's play another quick round of goth or not goth. Guillermo okay. del Toro, goth or not oh my, goth. Oh my God, I love him so much. He may not consider himself a goth, but he has done so much in terms of modern gothic gothic aesthetic and honoring it. When the first trailers for Crimson Peak dropped, 
everyone was like, uh, you know, he's directly targeting you, right? And I'm like, yes, I know. Yes, I know. I Yes, I'm going to be there opening night. Thank you very much. And again, he is very much about the aesthetics and the beauty of things that are darker. I mean, and dark fairy tales. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth is a beautiful, beautiful dark fairy tale with iconic monsters, iconic images. Is it necessarily 100% goth? No, but it certainly hits those notes. And also, he's a huge fan of monsters. So he he has that love for the possibly grotesque, the possibly scary. Now, what about Disney? I don't think I, I, I don't think I you tell me Disney as an overall brand certainly doesn't. I don't think I don't know if any brand is truly goth, but um, it, it does seem like there's some sort of Disney goth connection. Like you mentioned, the Nightmare Before Christmas, but there's also like I, I know there is this um, goth event at Disneyland where goth. That's all- day. So walk me through this. What is this? It's called Bat's Day at the Fun Park. Uh, It does happen every year. I am a huge fan of it. I've gone multiple years. And it is. It is just, you know, goths who enjoy Disney going there. And the Disneyland does not officially run any events that are not, you know, Disney's brand specific. But they are willing to acknowledge that this event is going to happen. And the last couple years I've gone, there there is nothing that officially says Bat's Day from the Disney merchandise, but there are, you know, spooky haunted mansion-themed pins that are only available that weekend. Cool. Or e- even though the event is in May, suddenly there are cupcakes with black frosting and little vampire Mickey Mouse toppers on them and stuff like that. So they they know that there is a strong component of the subculture that loves them. They, for the past couple of years, we were able to do photos on the steps of the Haunted Mansion, things like that. So what is the Disney goth connection? Because Disney seems like not interested in finding beauty and darkness. And if there are things like Haunted Mansion, Nightmare Before Christmas, that you think of that are these like, um, and there are creepy parts in all Disney movies, like Dumbo, yes. Pinocchio. These movies all have like very creepy monster scenes. So what is the goth Disney, like wh- wh- how do those overlap so much? Um, they overlap uh, partially because of Haunted Mansion, partially because of Nightmare Before Christmas, because the Haunted Mansion was designed, Walt Disney very specifically wanted something that was an homage to the classic like ghost train rides you would find at carnivals and things like that. And a lot, I'm a huge Haunted Mansion nerd, so this is why I can rattle this stuff off. Uh, The designers and everything worked on how can we incorporate scary folktales? How can we incorporate ideas from Edgar Allan Poe and things like that in one ride that is a little scary, but not too scary? That is Disney appropriate. So that's what they did with that. And Disney, they're very canny company you know they're huge so when they realized that there is money to be made from catering to spooky folk in a kind of family friendly way they were like all right we're doing this you can always get maleficent merchandise you can always get you know the disney villains are huge you can always find merchandise for any of them and also with the cartoons and things like that you know it's a it's good storytelling you need to have some sort of conflict so many of this, the movies were originally based off of fairy tales or folk tales. How do you create that conflict? There's going to be some sort of villain, and they are usually monstrous. Right, right, right. I know a lot of goth girls who their first exposure to some sort of strong villainous character was Maleficent. You know, it's a joke that there's a lot of us who, you know, who did you want to be? Did you want to be Aurora, or did you want to be Maleficent? She's like the kind of evil witch queen and um in in sleeping, in sleeping beauty, beauty right. and so, the one who transforms into the giant dragon yes right 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 and i guess when this gets back to the etiquette thing when the goths take over disney i imagine they're very respectful and go out of their way to like not disrupt the you know non-goths who are at the park that day right yes absolutely we uh we try to be very respectful of the fact that we are a niche audience because i bet that- year one disney's like was not putting out the bat cupcakes year one, no, you know, like no. you, you kind of had to prove that this was something where the community could exist and you know, that sort of thing. Right. Yes. And it used to be that Disneyland had very strict rules about, you know, what you could wear 
to the park anything that looked like a costume adults weren't allowed to wear. And they, over the years, have gotten a better understanding of the goth subculture and things like that. So they don't enforce those rules as strictly. Like when I go to Disneyland outside of Bat's Day, I still dress like myself. I've got a parasol. I'm roaming around in big, you know, fluffy black dress. And they don't bat an eye at me. They're like, okay, because I am not in costume as a Disney character. Therefore, there is no chance of other park attendees mistaking me for a park employee. Yeah, I think that rule is like basically like don't show up dressed as Tigger, you know? Yeah, I yeah, that's, that's exactly about there. So, okay, what are, what are like the etiquette lessons? Like, what is is there something us non goths can learn? Like, you guys have these specific social circumstances that you'll find yourself under uh, because of this subculture. Are, are there anything us non goths? Are there lessons we can learn from how you guys deal with these social situations? We are not doing this necessarily out of youthful rebellion. We're not doing this because we're depressed. We're not doing this because, you know, my soul is black, therefore I only wear black. It is a genuine aesthetic and musical interest. Yes, it is rooted in strong emotion, but that doesn't mean we're horrible people. That doesn't mean we're dangerous. That doesn't mean we're a danger to ourselves. It's just these are things we like. Also, and this is a big one that non non goths need to know. If you see someone who's dressed weirdly, dressed spookily, don't surreptitiously take photos of them. Go up and say, "Hey, I like your look," or "Can I take a photo of you?" And if they say no, respect that. And this is a thing that the flip side, I I really came down hard on in a couple of articles because a lot of goths would get really angry about, you know, going to the zoo and or going out to a picnic or something and having random non-goth people just take photos of them like they were some sort of exotic display. And so the non the goths would be like, well, we're going to turn the tables. We're going to go, you know, ask people, normal looking people why they're dressed like that and take photos of them and stuff like that. And I was like... Guys, treat people the way you want to be treated. Let's let's not perpetuate the myth that we're all sarcastic, rude jerks. Let's let's try and change that perception. So that's like you know, good rule for everyone to uh, keep, yes. keep, treat people the way you want to be treated. Are there any like goth etiquette issues that are very polarizing in the community, where like you have a point of view and you constantly get feedback about it, where people still push back? Um, it the the ever present gatekeeping issue of what is and what isn't goth. That's and true of all sub-communities. I mean, gaming it is. is like, oh, it's, yeah. it's the scourge of gaming. Yeah, are you, are you a real gamer if you're only, if you're playing Pokemon Go on your phone, or do you have to be a console gamer, or do you have to be playing something on your on your desktop? Yeah, I've, I have seen that debate go on in the gaming community because I'm on the fringes of it. But there are a lot of people who get very, very vocal about, well, if you don't listen to these specific bands from the dawn of the goth era, then you can't call yourself a goth. And they will they will be very bullying to other people on online. And I have been I have been interviewed and I've been talked to by other people in goth media who have basically said, Well, how do you feel about the fact that some people think you're giving away the secrets of the subculture? And I'm like, what 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 do you even mean by that? So that is actually a big polarizing thing about if there's a, can you call yourself a goth if you are not able to go out to goth clubs or you're not able to go to goth festivals or if you're not, if you don't listen to all the music? And should the people who can't do those sorts of things be discouraged and, or should they be treated scornfully? And there's a whole bunch of us who are like, no, no, that is not called for. And then there are other people who call us who have those views posers and stuff like that. And it's a constant argument. And I feel that argument can be had civilly and politely, but both sides tend to get a little heated and get a little snarky at each other. Or more than snarky, I should say. Have you seen – so there was sort of this initial um, wave of goth culture where there were all these pockets and people were hearing about and you'd have to look up bands. And then the internet came out and sort of helped people find each other, maybe unify the culture a little bit. But that, that's the mid-90s already. We're, we're already 20 years later. Are the, do you see, uh, like, that recent technology, has that affected goth culture at all? Is it different, like, now than it was even 10 years ago? It has because, one, you're able to find a lot more exa- – if you type in what is goth 
into any search engine, you're going to get, you know, pages upon pages of differing answers, but there's answers out there and you will get visual, you know, you'll get image search and stuff like that. The one downside to how technology has grown and, and especially with social media, and this is going to make me sound like a complete Luddite, but social media can perpetuate a false bar of what it means to be a goth or in any any community. So I get a lot of mail from especially younger readers who are like, well, I'm not, you know, I can't have big black tees, black hair. I can't dye my hair or I can't dress like this all the time. I can't afford these clothes. I Does that make me a real goth? Can I not be a goth if I'm not, you know, thin and tall and pretty and white and, you know, in my 20s? And that's because that's sort of the thing you see a lot of in like Instagram and Tumblr and Facebook groups where the people who are posting the photos, the people who are being really active, the algorithms for whatever reasons weight those particular types of photos. So you see people who are pretty and young and thin modeling clothes that they have been sent by large name goth fashion labels. And then you get these younger kids who don't necessarily have a really strong grasp of how the whole influencer culture works. And sadly we have that in the goth community. And so the kids get discouraged, but the flip side is social media is also allowing people of differing backgrounds to be, have stronger voices and say, yes, there are goths of color. Yes, there are goths who are over 30. You do not have to look like that or buy those brands to be in this community. It sounds like these are problems probably a lot of sub-communities face online, right? Yeah. Why, why do you think it is that goth culture has survived when like the new romantics that it evolved out of is not, or the mods are not really around anymore. What is it about goth culture that has made it persist? Um, goth culture has roots stretching back past the romantic era. You know, you could in a way argue that like Lord Byron was one of the original goths because, you know, what's the case for that? A- I don't know anything about Lord Byron. I was terrible in high school English. What is what, what <laughs> so why is Lord he, Byron? Yeah. He wrote a lot of romantic poetry about, you know, dark themes. He wrote he had a poem, if I remember correctly, Nate called The Vampire. He dug up a skull in the abbey that was bordering his house and used it to drink wine out of. You know, he was, the catchphrase was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. He was very, he was a bad boy. He was completely a bad boy. He played up that image. And so he was kind of dark and mysterious and brooding. And so you have that. You have the Victorian fascination with occultism, with the whole stricture and structures around mourning to the point of, oh, you are mourning a husband. You have to wear all black for this length of time. And then you can go to gray trimmed with black. And then you can go to violet. And then after X many years, you can go, you can wear regular colored clothes. Like you weren't supposed to go out in society for X amount of months or years. I don't remember off the top of my head if you were a Victorian widow. Yeah, so the reason it survives is because it has this like rich history where it's like it, it, it wasn't just invented 20 years ago. Exactly. It draws on so many things, on so many literary tropes, on so many artistic tropes that there's history that people can go back and explore. And again, it is a wide range of things. It is not just a musical subculture. Music is a huge part of it. Music is what helped kickstart the modern incarnation of it. But there's more to it than that. And I guess now uh, there's probably gots. I mean, in the 80s, there probably weren't gots who were, uh, you know, old. But now there's probably no. going to be old people goths soon and like, right? Yes. Or is that already, does that already exist? Um, that, well, it already exists. I mean, I'm part of a couple uh, elder goth groups on Facebook. There's a woman over in the UK who's huge, you know, has a huge Instagram following where she's, I want to say she's in like her 60s and she she dresses up every day. She does makeup every day and she's a huge inspiration. You the the original icons of goth music are i mean robert smith is what 65 you have everyone aging through the subculture and it's not something that has to be given up that's cool that's great so 
I mean, if you are interested in goth culture or know someone who is interested in goth culture, I would recommend this book. I love your inclusive, thoughtful approach and uh, polite approach to it. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I don't know. That seems like how – I mean, look, I don't know a lot about goth and the – I don't know a lot about goths in the subculture. But to me, it seems like that's a good approach for all subcultures. So I think anything that's doing that is good and to be recommended. So one more time, the name of the book is Gothic Charm School, An Essential Guide for Goths and Those Who Love Them. And is there like some social media? Where can people read your regular column? Um, people sort of can stuff. read the regular column at gothiccharmschool.com. I am on just about every social media under either Gothic Charm School or, you know, Jillian Venters or Cupcake Goth because I wear a lot of black with pink and that ended up being a nickname I got. Um yeah, I type in Jillian Venters or Gothic Charm School, you will find me all over social media <laughs> and also on Patreon. So all those things. And on the website, you are like, it's like a, an advice column. People write in with questions. It is an advice column. I do mainly, I alternate uh, tw twice a month posting is my goal, but sometimes life happens. But I alternate between answering some sort of question related to the goth subculture or a, a issue someone in the goth community is having and then i alternate with another type of column which is called stereotype technology and it's where i go find like interesting goth items or items that might be fashion items jewelry perfume whatever that might be interesting to people of our subculture or even with leanings for our subculture because i'm an insomniac and so like three in the morning i'm browsing <laughs> etsy and i figure i might as well have someone get use out of my window shopping uh, let me ask you before you go, just one last question. Uh, you're ask, you're answering these other people's questions besides mine. What's like the trickiest question that someone has ever sent in that took you the longest time to kind of puzzle out what the most polite way to handle it would be? Um, it was actually the, and it's a question I answered at the beginning of June, which is someone wrote in and said, okay, I have a family funeral to be going to. I normally dress in all black with nods to like Victorian through 1950s mourning and funereal clothing. What is the respectful way for me to go to the funeral? How, what should I do? And my response was the thing is funerals are an inherently respectful time. You need to be as respectful as possible. So do not dress to be, the center of attention. Do not dress to really garner any attention. You are there to celebrate the memory of the person who's passed. So dress as low key as possible. You know, don't necessarily go out and buy an all new outfit, but whatever the most conservative, oh my God, I'm going to a super normal job interview sort of outfit you can wear. Don't do elaborate makeup, things like don't be, you know, don't wear a full length veil and things like that. Be as polite and respectful to the person's memory as possible. Good advice, and you can find more like it at Gothic Charm School. Jillian, thanks so much for talking. Thank you so much. That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>